street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Welcome to Epistemic, episode number 12, show title Linguistics Analysis. This should be interesting. So my name is Reed, uh, aka Cordial Curiosity. I'm your host today, and we have some co-hosts today as well, Anthony and Daniel. What's up, you guys? Hello. Good morning. Nice hey, and early hey. today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Daniel, you look like you just rolled out of bed, dude. Well, you're not wrong. I'll tell you that. But that's okay. Happy to be here. Yeah, I think this is evidence that we are pretty dedicated to SE if we're up at, what is it, 7 a.m. on a Saturday? <laughs> a Saturday. Yeah. So That's dedication, I guess. That's that's something. But we also have a guest today, um, Jules. Um, hello, Jules. How are you doing? <clears throat> Very fine. Very fine. Luckily, it's only 8 a.m. here. So, yeah, you're in Arizona, so it's a little. It's not as, uh, it's not as late as. Yeah, this is earlier for you than I thought it would be. So, thanks for sticking with us. The morning sunshine's just rocking over the mountain, so pretty nice. What a nice way to put that. It's so nice. (laughs) It's a beautiful visual. Well, she is a linguist. She has a background in linguistics, so she she knows her way around with the words. You know, we need to like mix it up and ha- and grow our vocabulary. It really helps us express our ideas in more meaningful ways. Yeah, my vocabulary usually isn't that grown at this time of the morning, but I'm so glad that other people don't share that same characteristic. So, I really like words for sure. Words, words, words. Yeah, so. So yeah, Jules, you're a scholar and educator with an interest in linguistics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And today we're going to be talking about your linguistics work about SE. So that's really cool. And uh, yeah, we want to get straight into that. Uh, okay. uh, any, so to start off, like, how did you first learn about SE? How did you first uh, see, um, see these conversations? Yeah, what, what's the background? Um, so yeah, my husband is, uh, in the best sense of the loving term, a YouTube kind of junkie, or I'm not going to say an addict. I, I feel like, so when I would come home from teaching, I'd usually get like updates from whatever finds he had gleaned from a day of, of YouTubing. So, um, yeah, he, uh, Got me listening to a lot of, of, I guess, what you would call the atheist community and the voices on YouTube. And so it doesn't take long before the name Peter Bogosian pops up in various videos and comments. Uh, Then he downloaded the manual for creating atheists onto my nook. And so I started actually reading the book. But... um, just kind of like hanging out, probably like grading papers, like toning out whatever he was playing. Uh, you know, started hearing a very calm, soothing voice and talking very reasonably and uh, but passionately and calmly to individuals, um, exploring their beliefs in ways that I feel would have helped me transition out of certain beliefs that I've chosen to no longer hold. Um, So yeah, uh, so I guess just listening to it and then just feeling like it's such a phenomenon um, and it's just was something like just always in the queue, Anthony and Reed, you come up quite often now and uh, other folks as well and so So yeah, I started a doctoral program at Northern Arizona University in applied linguistics. And um, for my classes, I just started kind of choosing interesting topics because that's what I was encouraged to do. So uh, my very first semester, I did a corpus linguistics study on the use of the verbs believe, know, and think. And I had both theist and atheist speakers. And um, so I analyzed 
their transcripts of both debates and like uh, one-way speeches and looked at how those speaker groups use those verbs, um, just kind of looking at patterning and stuff. And so that was really fun. And so in my fourth semester, I started studying pragmatics, which is really like the linguistic component of interaction. So trying to figure out what medium are we using to communicate and what are the features of that and what are the functions of that. So uh, you start looking at, at really interesting dimensions of, and so of course, immediately I just kind of was like, SE is a speech act that is unique and it has characteristics, but like what, like how could I as a scholar, as a linguist who can talk about other registers, like I could talk about the features of email uh, between teacher and student, between work, coworkers. So, I mean, you do a lot of cool stuff and you get to look at cool slices of communication. And so I chose to look at SE and uh, very timidly uh, contacted Anthony and said, uh, do you ever transcribe your conversations? And that's where it went. Uh, and if so, I remember right, we didn't have any transcriptions at that point. It was mm -hmm. right around the time that you were reaching out to ask us for, for transcriptions or if this mm -hmm. was even something we haven't considered doing. I think there was another member in one of the SE Facebook groups who wanted to transcribe them. His name is Doug Dean. And then he he volunteered to take the lead and bring together all these volunteers to build transcripts. Um, I'm trying to think now what we were trying to accomplish besides helping you with your project with the transcripts. I think possibly just reach reach a group of people who might prefer to read these things rather than mm -hmm. watch them. I, I think, think too, Joe was making a chat bot, I thought too. Oh, right. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. There were like three or four goals that we had with yeah. transcripts and yours was one of those four, mm -hmm. but yeah, uh, mm -hmm. helping to, to build a chat bot, giving text-based content to people who prefer it in that format. And then you with your project. And I think there was something else I can't remember. Was it about subtitling your videos too, maybe to have the captions or oh, whatever? Thank you. Maybe? Yes. That's what and it was. Maybe translation too, I think. Right. It was, they could so, translate from the transcript. That's so. exactly. Yes. Yeah. So when you transcribe something in English, you can upload that to the YouTube video and that it's easier for people to transcribe the transcriptions or translate the transcriptions into their languages. And then you introduce SE to completely different populations that may have never if they don't understand English, for example, if they have it in Turkish, then that's great. So yeah, there, there were a lot of, we were able to kill a lot of birds with one stone, I think, by going to transcriptions, which reminds me, if you go to streetepistemology.com and click on transcripts, you'll see all the transcripts that are there. And I didn't count these, but there's at least 30 of them here. There's quite a few. And, uh, and yeah, and th that, that apparently was helpful with your study that you did. How many, how many transcripts did you end up looking at for your study? Um, I believe I had six or seven. Was there a particular belief category you picked or did you, did, mm -hmm. did it matter what the person believed? Well, I certainly wanted to try and hold uh, certain variables like, um, consistent, uh, with my data so that I could kind of build a pretty strong argument about what I was finding and what I was seeing. So I definitely wanted to make sure that my SE was, was consistent, which was Anthony. The belief was karma. Mm. And, um, and I think those were pretty much the two things that I tried. So I think I had about seven for my study because of course it was mostly piloting work um, because SE is such a new phenomenon, there's not a lot of theoretical frameworks to draw from in order to put together the kind of description that I wanted mm. to um, for See, both my class assignment and yeah. So. You're a pioneer in this because nobody <laughs> has ever studied SE in any formal way that I'm aware of. Maybe there, maybe here, here's my like, my, my, my hope is that there's somebody just lurking in the group and jotting and, and studying this, but not interfering. 
um, and researching what we're doing. But no, I, as far as I know, you were like the only person to to start looking at the content to try to draw some conclusions from it that I'm aware of. And that was really exciting. And I don't think that you're going to be the last. I hope not. Yeah. Um, what was the response of your classmates? Did you have to sell them on this idea? Was there any resistance? Did they did they think it was really cool? I mean, I'm a little curious what your classmates or your instructors maybe thought when you floated this idea of studying street epistemology. Um, so yeah, like definitely during kind of the planning stages and the proposal stages uh, at the beginning of the class, we broke out into small groups and pitched our ideas like in groups of two or three. And yeah, I mean, there was definitely some of that reaction of this seems manipulative, this seems coercive, this seems like underhanded. And it was a little frustrating, but I think there was definitely some cognitive dissonance kind of occurring there. Uh, oh, were there do, you think that, do you think that there were people I don't who, know. maybe not. Do you think that there were people, either students or instructors who shared the belief in karma and could that could that have been one of the reasons why they were a little reluctant to i don't know why they saw it in that light or was there some other reason maybe um i'm not exactly sure um i certainly was aware of some of my classmates uh belief systems that they were adhering to and identifying as um some of them I, I didn't and I didn't get that reaction from everyone. I think it was really hard to Explain it, but actually I also worked Similarly on this project in another class that was focused on doing a literature review so I do have an extensive literature review of at least what I gleaned from the fields of psychology philosophy and linguistics to somehow try and blend it together and through that, like multiple drafting, my classmates had at least read two drafts of that. And by the time they got through that second draft, they were like, okay, I'm starting to understand what this is and what you're saying it does. Mm. Uh, I don't know if they believe that it was doing what I said it was, but I could at least make a case through literature that these are the pieces at play and let's figure out how they play or I'm curious yeah. to know how they play. Cool. And you mentioned something about speech act. Like I heard that term from Steven Pinker uh, on a podcast at some point. Is, does that relate to what you were just saying? So yeah, that's definitely a linguistics term that's used in like discourse analysis and pragmatics to describe certain acts of communication that we can then break down and describe in various ways. So when you think about SE, is it a conversation? Is it an interview? Is it what Peter Bogosian says, the intervention? What do we call that? And what else looks like that so we can see what pieces are intermingling to create the speech act that is street epistemology? And I would say I would claim, I guess, that I feel like it is kind of a unique individual speech act and we can't say it's a conversation. We can't say it's an interview. We can't say it's, I don't know, it's its own entity, but that's just me. Wow. <laughs> it, it would be neat to see what makes something manipulative. Like what's the best example of a manipulative conversation? What are the components of that? And then see if, the transcriptions of 50 encounters of SE meet X percent of those, those variables. Cause it, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if, if this is manipulative or not closely at all, or, Hey, there's about a 20% uh, comp manipulative component to this or something. It'd be, it'd be interesting to, to understand what manipulative means. And that if these SE conversations have those types of, components to it yeah and, uh, uh, go ahead sorry oh well thank you reed i apologize this <laughs> is a great conversation I, i'm excited but um this is a great way to wake up um but yeah i would say too i think 
if you try and say what SE is, like if you define it before maybe just doing like a raw viewing of a video without any setup, you're basically kind of, when you talk about what's happening in and of itself, it has a manipulative characteristic. So I think that just saying to a classmate or to someone on the street, like, I'm just going to ask you to explore a belief but if you add certain tinges like with an aim to consider revision or to explore what un fundamental mechanisms are underlying your holding of this belief kind of thing. So. Wait a second. I'm not sure I follow what you're saying. Are you saying that you could skew the, the observer's perception if you explain too much? Yeah, so like, I guess if I said to I, one of my classmates that had one of those kind of manipulation, manipulative type uh, reactions to my, uh, my project with street epistemology, I think it was because when I tried to say what street epistemology is, I maybe named the goal, which sometimes is not good, because I think if you define it with a possible goal and perhaps that's a, a fault of mine and I'm not saying that anyone else should do it and probably should be avoided but like saying like with an e aim toward belief revision of some kind I think that level of imposition of such a personal mm. um, place to want to explore and talk about just that act is is threatening yeah you know that's not that that might have some merit to it because what we're well what what it seems pretty evident is that the practitioners of SE tend to have completely different goals from each other that there's not just one stated goal. Reed might want to disabuse a person of a belief. I might want to help a person reflect on the belief and leave them with a pebble or something. And there might be other people who are like. I just want to, I, I want my per, the person that I talk to to have a better understanding of what they believe. So the goals do vary from, from practitioner to practitioner, but the conversations might take the same general path. So yeah, maybe, maybe withholding, the, you know, expressing what you think the goal is might actually be a good thing because what you think the goal is, Jules, may be completely different than the practitioner's. You didn't happen to do any analysis on Dan's conversation, did you, Anthony and Dan? Oh, uh, he she only studied karma, and we didn't oh, talk about karma. karma. Yeah, because okay. that would have been interesting. That would have been. Did you know that Dan was one of my interlocutors? No. Okay. No, I did not. Yeah, yeah. I might have seen the video, uh, but I've seen many. Okay. Yeah, yeah I don't. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what's interesting too, Jules, is I do communication studies. Um, here and so when I hear you talking about you know this kind of didactic language you know linguistic markers as to what what how we indicate our goals in doing SE I think that's really key and important because uh, from my process from when I first encountered SE right it wasn't somebody didn't describe the process before I underwent it I just did it and so my experience to that you know, was just doing it raw and just seeing what it was for what it was. Um, and it's hard to get that across to somebody who's never done it before without making it sound like I'm being manipulated or I'm being, you know, something else is going on. Um, but really when I saw it for what it was, then I could see the merits to it. Even if I didn't agree with Anthony at the time, about his worldview, I could see that there was a real merit to, you know, exploring these belief systems. But it's such a unique process, right? It's it's hard to compare it to other things. So a lot of people don't already have a model in their mind of what that's like. So it can seem really threatening, I think. Um, so yeah, it's good. To uh, I, also, I also think the inconsistencies of goals and of of practitioners' methods. They're, they're, the approaches are different, and the goals are different. So when there's somebody on the sidelines looking at all these different examples, even the same practitioner, like my goals and my my method was different, um, you know, three years ago than it is today. 
So I think that that throws people who are observing these conversations and trying to understand what what's really happening here can get really confused because even within the same practitioner, the goals and the, and the, the approach is going to vary. I could have three conversations on the same day and my goals and my process could vary. So yeah, it's a, it's a confusing thing to study. So yeah, I guess, you know, looking at one practitioner and one belief claim karma was probably the best way to go. So, all right. So what did you find with your studies? What were some of the takeaways? Well, uh, I would definitely say first and foremost that, um, academia is really interesting. Uh, so trying to find the literature that's going to support what you say is really hard when it's something, I guess, as new as SE um, and understudied. So that was a huge challenge. Like I talked to, well, I was able to meet Peter Bogosian, which was amazing, but I also reached out to my university's philosophy department um, asking for literature from the field of philosophy that would tell me what a Socratic question was. And as far as I know to this day still, there's no like firm paper or theoretical paper that's establishing the philosophical groundwork or definition of a Socratic question. So yeah. I remember I you messaging to, me. I think you messaged me on Facebook and you said, what is a Socratic question to you? And I don't really remember what my answer was, but I, I don't I, that see, I think our conversation and your work was the genesis behind me realizing the category types of questions, the mm -hmm. what, why, and the how. Mm -hmm. And it was probably in our little dialogue that helped me realize that, oh, it's when you're, when you're asking a person about the how, about the method, that that's mm -hmm. what I think makes these conversations street epistemology. Um, I don't know if that ever answered your question. It doesn't sound like it did. I, like, what is a Socratic question? That's a that's a fantastic question. Well, I mean, it was really interesting because the only solid source I could find that had a really nice breakdown of what a Socratic question was was some kind of like fringy academic that we could never really like track him down a hundred percent he had like cheesy old web pages and stuff like that and it was so frustrating because it's like he encapsulated it so nicely but mm. i didn't know how much academic integrity i could give to him as a source even though his work was the richest on what i was trying what i was wanting to do i think it would um, be it would be nice to have a link to that in the show notes if we, if you can give that to us after the fact that would be great um, you know, one of my concerns in working with you, though, I have to be frank with you, <laughs> was that I didn't want to influence your work. Yes, I think SE is great, and I would like to see it succeed, but I didn't want to sway your results. So um, when we were compiling transcripts for you, uh, we, we, we did like 50 of them, and we let you pick the ones that you wanted to look at. And, you know, we weren't involved in any way. At least I wasn't involved in any way, but you said that you met with Bogosian. And I'm wondering if, did you feel like you were being swayed or persuaded to to do anything with your results? I mean, were you, what were you hoping to get out of your conversation with Bogosian when you met with him as you were doing your study? Well, at that point in, uh, in time, I was actually in a PhD program. Uh, I hadn't screened in all the way, and unfortunately I didn't, but... Uh, I had actually asked him to be on my dissertation committee since street epistemology was what I wanted to focus on. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, unfortunately, the university where I'm at, there wasn't any faculty left who could uh, comfortably uh, work with me on what I wanted to do. So I, mm -hmm. I wasn't able to continue in that program. So yeah. But okay. uh, yeah, so I mean, that there was that element of being like, okay, you're an academic, I'm interested in what you've created and kind of pushed out to the masses. And he was very on board. And that was really cool. So it was mostly just kind of like a scholar scholarly connection, I guess, because mm -hmm. 
you have to have an outside committee member. So like it was it was mm -hmm. quite exciting. Was there anything unique about the SE conversations that you discovered in your studies? Well, I mean, it's interesting, Anthony, because you talk about how our dialogues inspired you to create your what, why, and how. Um, I would have defined, I define those questions functionally rather than how you would conceive them maybe lexically with a word. So it's, it's really funny you say that because, okay, uh, let me just throw this in there real quick. Because I'm actually in my next couple workshops coming up on SE, I'm thinking about ditching the what, why, how and showing the actual functional part of the conversation. Because you can you can be asking about a person's what, but the, the question doesn't start with the word what. And I think that's confusing to people. But please go ahead. I'm sorry. I, didn't want, I thought I needed to interject that before you go on. No, I mean, my data shows that what you might call a how question generally takes the form of a yes, no question. Mm. Like grammatically, it's a yes, no question, but it's functioning Socratically to do a certain thing. Oh, weird. Because I, I don't like asking yes, no questions because it tends to just halt the conversation. Well, a lot of hypothetical questions are grammatically yes, no questions. And so that is at a pure grammatical level. We're not imposing like meaning or other contexts on it. If I just diagram your sentence, your question, mm -hmm. that's the grammatical structure. But it doesn't tell us anything about how it's functioning in the conversation or what its intended semantic function or meaning function is. So when you talk about a grammatical structure, it's like, this is what it is grammatically, but stuff that when you look at it that way does not tell you anything about what's actually going on or what it me means. Mm. Is there an example off the top of your head that you think would be a good example? Like a good, yeah. How, how could you demonstrate what you just said? I think that would be more helpful for me. Okay. So as a linguist, the, uh, this is a, a Noam Chomsky's famous kind of linguistics position. So he uh, used the sentence, colorless green dreams sleep furiously. And that is a perfectly grammatical sentence. There is no grammatical problems. However, it has no meaning. It has no semantic value. You can't, it doesn't mean anything, even though it's grammatical. Lewis Carroll is also very famous for this. If you say like the igly traced wombly, well, you would guess that traced is the verb of this sentence because I've inflected it with a past test ending and it has a grammatical flow as English would, even though there's nonsense words inserted into it. So as a linguist, when we look at grammatical function, it shows us characteristics of the language, but it doesn't, it's just one little piece of the puzzle. Okay. Um, is, that, is that sufficient? Uh, or do you need more? I think uh, what I was hoping for, I don't know if, if you can whip this up real oh. quick off of your memory, but what would be an example of a question that I might ask that is a yes, no, but um, is a, did you say it's a hypothetical? It would be like a hypothetical question. Mm -hmm. Hypo I think you said hypothetical questions are by default yes, no's, but they don't, they don't, are you saying they don't elicit a yes, no response? They tend mm -hmm. to elicit mm -hmm. a, a more lengthy response. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's only a yes, no question in the grammatical sense. Generally, the IL is not going to respond yes, no. Okay. Um, and so what we would say at a pragmatic level or a discourse level in the conversation is that it's better for you as far as the rapport that you're trying to maintain to package your question grammatically as a yes, no question, as opposed to a direct how question, because that's easier for the IL to digest and maintains that more equal conversational rapport. It's called intersubjectivity. It, it, it's this thing that's happening between the SE and the IL. And so, 
the SE generally will, well, hopefully what you should be focused on is maintaining that comfort level by doing certain rapport building things and the way you're packaging what you're saying to them in a way that's not threatening to them as a person so that they're willing to actually share and mm -hmm. expand. Oh yeah. Making people feel comfortable is a big part of SE, I think. And it's one of the reasons why I think people struggled trying to do it over text because it's, it's hard to convey that I'm listening and I, this is a safe place to discuss this type of stuff. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. So you're familiar with kind of the goals of SC, you know, keeping a friendly rapport. Was there any words you would recommend we, rec we um, avoid or anything you would recommend us do differently in our conversations? Mm. Uh, not necessarily. I don't feel like I, any of my data really looked into any of that. Um, so once again, when you are looking at intersubjectivity, which is this kind of relationship that's being built through conversation and dialogue, um, both, the, so the one person has the responsibility to make sure that they're not overly imposing on the person they're in conversation with, but they also have personal goals of the dialogue that they're also advocating for in various ways through their speech. And so you really do have to strike a fine balance between that, I think, in order for it to be successful. Um, so I guess, Anthony, the question types that I developed from your conversations, my very first category of question is a rapport building question. So it's actually a type of question that happens in an SE exchange. And I'm pretty sure I could apply my coding scheme to read. If you have any transcripts, it would be interesting to see if your questioning patterns similarly, because for my study that I did specifically, I only looked at the SE's questions to the IL, um, just because for a class paper, you have to narrow, narrow, narrow. Um, but I think it was a good starting point. And what what were the categories you ended up using? Three. Um, so yeah, uh, I had three question types. So I had a rapport building question, probing questions, and Socratic questions. And then for um, for those three types. Um, I had three functions for the rapport building questions. So rapport building questions function to either do a greeting or an introduction, to request permission, or to build trust. So those are the three functions of the rapport building questions that the SE uses. The second type of question is a probing question, and those had two functions. Um, one was to request concrete information and then to request concrete examples. And then finally, the third type, the Socratic questions had uh, three functions as well. Did you track any nonverbal behaviors? Um, not really, no, unfortunately. Like I said, uh, because I was doing this kind of initial pilot study on those, just those seven transcripts and stuff, uh, I had to have a pretty narrowed uh, research question. Um, if yeah. this became more of a, a dissertation type length of a document, uh, it would be a, a, an interesting facet to work on. But mm -hmm. while linguists are aware of nonverbal behavior, it's, pretty hard to nail down so they'd rather do things that are more concrete and empirical like quantitative so yeah in, in my the reason i asked that is because i seem to remember when we were making the transcripts if there was a pause we we had an entry we had some sort of format that we would say you know pause and, and then maybe even tracking the number of seconds the pause was and seeing if that had any influence in the conversation as well um, you know, I was wondering though, is 
let's say that there's somebody who's interested in SE and they're interested in linguistics and they want to do a study. Is there any advice that you would give a person? Um, like I said, I mean, if you are interested in my literature review and want to see academic sources that I found that help to support um, the academic kind of characteristics that I, or, sorry, the kind of constructs, constructs that I was trying to use to describe SE. Um, I would be more than willing to share those sources with you. Actually, the uh, the reference page at the back of Manual for Creating Atheist has a lot of good academic sources uh, that Peter used to, uh, you know, write his book and he cites in his book. And so um, I would say that was a huge challenge. I'm glad that I actually was in a class that helped me build that and kept me kind of on track and focused because reading psychology papers about doxaxic mechanisms in the brain is tiresome, but <laughs> worth it. And also, what were the three functions of the, of the Socratic questions? That, yeah, it's a little curious on that. <laughs> so the, the Socratic questions function to either clarify a concept or to examine that conceptualization or to question viewpoints and perspectives. Cool. Yeah. So the purpose of a Socratic question would be to challenge accuracy or completeness of thinking, to uncover concepts underlying an argument, to cause consideration of presuppositions, to offer an alternative but valid viewpoint, or to examine the logic of an argument's implications. So those were the purposes of the Socratic questions that I was able to identify um, and That's use great. to code the questions. That's great. Do you think your study would help a person be better at street epistemology? Like, do you think that your, let's say that your work and the work of other people who are, who study the linguistics behind SE put papers out, do you think that that in itself would help a person learn the method and become proficient at it? Um, I suppose it might help give them insight. Um, you know, looking at how I defined and broke down Socratic questions, especially, I guess, and thinking and looking at maybe what we, so like, I'm saying this is a Socratic question with this function. So what does that look mm -hmm. like? So maybe that would allow some comparison and maybe some reflection on how they're formulating those questions and maybe. Yeah. You know, if there was time to look more, you could, I mean, outcomes would have been a really fun direction to take this to say, okay, rather than grouping these scripts by a belief that was explored, group these scripts by people who maybe had a more kind of, what's it called? The Apura or whatever. Aporia. You know aporia. Yeah, Aporia, thank you. That Sorry. moment of reflection. Right, versus mm -hmm. someone who maybe goes away discouraged or um, not reinforced in their in their belief or something like that. Oh, wow. um, that's, that so would be looking at outcomes would be a really amazing direction because then you could look at, okay, what questions were success? Maybe we could say this uh, type of question or when we put the question together this way, it's more successful than when we put the question together that way. Yeah. I think so it's really fascinating. I'm sorry. So I would say that the work that I did was great because once again, by creating that framework and so that I could code the questions based on type, function, grammatical feature, I mean, I would be more than willing to share that. I'm a very, uh, you know, uh, sharing person. So, uh, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so. If anyone wants to look at that and see if they can code those questions, uh, their own questions or questions from other conversations um, using my framework, you know, it might be a good starting point. Mm -hmm. And it had 92% accuracy with another rater. So 
Cool. Wait a second. What do you mean exactly? What had 92%? <laughs> I didn't follow um, that. So once again, part of your research methodology is that when I create a coding system and I extract the questions, I say they have this type, this function. If I give that code and those questions to someone else who has similar linguistic training as far as analytical skills, how much do we agree? So is he identifying oh, the I see. Type? And so you, I had a second rater as part of my research methodology. It's useful to have a second rater code the yeah. same data you're coding, and then you calculate an agreement score Mm -hmm. which you report, of course, in your findings, which is helpful to say, while it's not, of course, 100% perfect, 92% agreement, especially on pragmatic issues, is pretty high. In linguistics. Yeah. So it's a yeah. very acceptable level. Yeah, that's cool. Um, okay, yeah, I follow that. I think if, like, I obviously learned about SE from Pugosian's book, but I really got into it watching Anthony's videos. And when I started doing it myself, I was basically kind of just mimicking Anthony and not really knowing what the functions were of like what I was doing. Like that came later after like reviewing what I was doing on with my editing software. I was just watch watch me myself back. And my editing software has this feature where you can like keyword sections of the of the footage. And I would make up like categories of the questions and uh, probing was one of the categories. And that, that's really cool to see, but but it would have been great if Anthony could have like had graphics on his videos, so I'm like, okay, this question is a probing question or a Socratic question, and and the type of Socratic question. But here's the thing, Reed. Like, I I d didn't even know to, like it, that thought never crossed my mind that hey, I should start categorizing this to see what's. Ha it, it really wasn't until I started adding captions to my videos. And then getting involved in this transcription process and then having the discussion with Jules here that it dawned on me that there there's there might be some value into really getting into the nitty-gritty of what these what what's happening during these talks. Which is I it's I was just gonna say earlier, it's ironic that that we're engaging these in these conversations, not fully understanding the mechanics behind it. But in a way it's kind of good because we're generating content, we're having people who are interested in, in it and looking at it. And then they're starting to, like, it's probably better this way that we're just throwing shit out there and then we're having somebody come back later to see what's happening as opposed to reading a book saying, make sure that your conversation has this kind of question in there. I, I don't know what would be ideal, at least for starting out. Like, I think we should just throw everything at the wall, all different. That's why I try to encourage people from yeah. every different background or whatever, you know, try your hand at this. And let's see what happens. And then maybe after the fact, we start unpacking it and seeing what works the best. Yeah, but I think we have like a really solid framework of just the major categories of what we're doing. So now that that's clarified, that's mm -hmm. really cool to see. And I think maybe if I added some graphics of like the categories of the questions I'm asking, that might be, uh, that might make it more clear for people like what we're doing. Yeah, it's funny you say that because well, in the in the talk that I gave in Oslo, I, I showed an example video of a woman who believes in karma. So it's kind of a perfect example here. And during the talk, the words what, why, and how pop up on the screen. So if I'm asking a question related to what the person believes, how would you define the word karma? Even though it starts with how, it's a, it's a what-related question. It's related to what she believes. So these little things are popping up on the screen throughout the duration. Now I switch that. So instead of what, why, how, in the next workshops I give, I'm going to talk about belief, reasons, and method. So it's the same conversation, but different words popping up. So when I'm asking a question that's related to the belief, the little belief word pops up. If it's related to her method, how she determined that it's true, the word method shows up. So, I, yeah, I do think that there could be some value if, if, if there was ever a volunteer that wanted to go through their favorite their top 10 favorite conversations and start putting these labels on it maybe some patterns would would develop one thing that i've noticed is that we start at the what we we unpack the why and then we spend a lot of time at the method and then we come back up 
uh, the how, we come back up and we talk about the what again. To put that into the belief claims, I'm sorry, to put that into the belief reasons method, we start at the belief, we discuss the reasons, we touch on the method, we figure out if it's a reliable one, and then we go back up to the belief. And that's yeah. that tends to be the pattern. If you, yeah. if, you, if you tickle the method a little bit, come back up to the belief, then they realize I can't be as I probably can't be as confident as I was when I we first started this talk. So what were the categories? It was like probing, clarifying, Socratic, and that seems to map on pretty well to belief. Claims, claims uh, beliefs, I keep claims. I was toying between claims and belief, but I, I'm going with belief. So yeah, belief, reasons, which is the why, and method, which is the how. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right. Any other questions, Dan? So uh, yeah, just one more if you had time, Jules. Uh, you mentioned there was a kind of a lack of literature on SE, and it was kind of hard coming up with a new way of framing SE with current paradigms and what we know in linguistics and and fields like that. I was curious if from the research that you were able to gather, were you able to compare it to other methods of of dialogue, like motivational interviewing or things like that? Were there any comparisons you were able to make to already existing methods with um, empirical backing to them? Uh, the one the one field that actually meshed the closest, and I actually had made a comment on a on the Facebook thread about this, but um, was actually negotiation techniques. Still, what trained negotiators are uh, instructed to do, especially on the rapport building side of it, for sure. Um, yeah, a lot of other. Yeah, I would say I'm not sure what you mean by a. Did you say motivational interview? Yeah, motivational interviewing. Uh, that's a, a method that's, um, uh, I don't know what licensed practicing is for that. I guess uh, drug therapy, uh, people who use that for addiction, recovery, stuff like that. I didn't look at any of that literature, but I bet it is pretty rich. That would be very interesting to look at. Um, a lot of the literature I found on interviews was more like TV or like media style interviews, which once again, didn't re really give me the constructs and the pieces that were effective to what I wanted to look at. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I would say, yeah, that the, uh, negotiation rapport building and then also um, there was some literature about um, using Socratic teaching methods um, in capstone programs and so that was where I was kind of doing my best to find anything that talked about the applications of the Socratic method and what empirical pieces uh, you can find in there. I think it would be a fascinating study to look at motivational interviewing hostage negotiation, street epistemology, manipulation tactics by salespeople, whatever, and see see what's different and what's similar. I think it'd be really that would be really fascinating to see what's drawing from from what. Very cool. Well, that was really great. I'm I'm really excited to have you here to talk to us about this because we want people to study SE. We're fascinated with it. We're practitioners of it. And it's it's neat to see somebody taking a, an academic perspective on it and try to tell us what it is we're doing, <laughs> for lack of a better you know phrase. Because sometimes I'm not quite sure like what's really happening in these talks. And reading reading them was really revealing to me. And if, if somebody could take it a step further and do studies on it based on the transcriptions, then then we should. Maybe even revisit. I know there was a big push. We have about 50 videos that were transcribed, and they're on the SE website. If you guys want to check that out, um, the guy who did, who led that project, and several volunteers. I think we had 20 volunteers at one point. Uh, Doug Dean is the guy who took the lead on that, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, the timestamps of the transcripts link directly to the video that was transcribed. So something really profound. You read something really profound. You can see it happening in the video. So it's really, really uh, exciting. And maybe maybe somebody watches this video and they say, oh, 
I want to get into this. I want to look, I want to take this other different approach that maybe nobody ever considered before. That's what I'm hoping to get out of this interview is to inspire people to do some more research on it. And maybe we can get a volunteer to do 50 more transcriptions. Totally. We could use the subtitles as well, <laughs> at least for that as well. All right. Cool. So, Jules, you're more than welcome to stick around. I don't think we have too many more topics to go over, but uh, we would love to have you stick around if you want. Yeah, I'll 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 hang for a second. Maybe I'll go pour another cup of coffee. Okay. The mountains aren't aren't good enough for you anymore. What's going on? <laughs> I am. I am originally from the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I pour a lot of coffee into my body in the morning, uh, just ritually. It's, uh, yeah. Do we have any audience questions out there? Is anyone watching the live stream? I'll take yeah, a look at it. There was one question about, um, does Jules have any future plans to do more studies based on SE or what is what is your plans just in general? I guess you'll let us know when she's back from getting coffee. I think I'm going to be heading out to Los Angeles in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. I've got a family issue out there. We're going to take care of it and I might have some free time. I think I might be hanging out with Reed. We might do some street epistemology using his setup there. So I'm looking forward to that. And there's also, what would you call it? Like a, a gathering, a, a talk by uh, Sam Harris and Steven Pinker in Los Angeles. Yeah. We're going to try to go see. Lucky ducks. Lucky ducks. Yeah. So Jules, would you have a question for Steven Pinker? Like what would you want to talk to Steven Pinker about? I wonder. You're still muted too. Uh, wow. That would be a, uh pretty i'm not sure i i oh that's a hard one um i guess just i guess it would be interesting to see how aware he is of uh street epistemology and uh yeah i guess just ask him what uh boy i just don't know what would you ask him Reed? Um, yeah Help me out. Um, I don't know what I'd ask. I'm reading his new book, Enlightenment Now, probably something about that. Um, but yeah, someone had a question about uh, Jules. If you had any future plans to continue studying SE or, or just what are your plans in the future in general? Um, I don't really know right now. Um, I uh, have a really awesome job. I teach adult education at a community college. Um, and I teach uh, language arts to to people seeking a GED. So uh, I'm really enjoying that gig. Uh, it's pretty cool right now. And so I think if I wanted to continue in academia, I'd probably choose more of an educational focus. Uh, it was interesting in my exit interview from the Applied Linguistics Department, I was told that I was too creative to be Applied Linguist and that I would be more appreciated in education. <laughs> So uh, oh, I guess um, I guess one of my interests is really looking once again using SE to uh, to look at how we can integrate that into a classroom setting because I feel like while I am not a direct practitioner of SE I feel like in the classroom every week. I mean, my, my students are probably sick and tired of me asking them how they know this. Um, <laughs> but when they finally, after three weeks, can tell me why this comma goes there and how they know that, it's pretty awesome. So, um, cool. And I think it's a really good way of another in. Um, education is just incredible and very necessary. I think uh, informal logic is something that is sorely needed um, in education today. No kidding. No kidding. At a young age, too. Let's start them early. In fact, that reminds me, there's a good chance that I might be teaching street epistemology to a secular camp. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Camp Quest or not. 
but I th uh, we're working out the details, but I think there's a good chance that I'll be giving in a, a teaching teaching street epistemology to two campers, probably young teenagers uh, this coming summer. So that should be fun. The earlier, the better. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's just one of the crucial things. And so once again, just looking for applications of this method, because while, you know, I would say Reed and, and Anthony, I don't know if you also now do SE Dan or, you know, but I mean, that's a very kind of pure, very kind of book driven, maybe set up for that. But I think looking at the applications and how it can really just become an organic way that we engage and interact with people on a daily basis, I think is just super crucial and critical. Yeah, I had a math comm professor who I have no idea if he knows anything about street epistemology, but he basically, he might as well have been a street epistemologist the way that he taught our class. You know, it was mostly through Socratic dialogue and and kind of like what you're doing, you know, asking people how they know the things that they know. And it was one of the most um, informative classes I've ever had because one, the teaching style was so open to conversation and we could spend 20 minutes, you know, breaking down a topic that may not have been in the lesson plan, but it was still important for us to break down and recognize. And I, I, I see a very valuable set of skills through street epistemology that can be applied to education. Um, no question about that. Um, and I hope in the future we have more of an empirical background for this method or uh, in these ideas so that more, more educators could take it seriously and use it in a classroom context. I think that would be wonderful. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Jules, for sharing uh, these great insights. That's awesome. All right. So any announcements um, upcoming? Anthony, you said you're coming to LA, so we'll be hanging out on this weekend, but next weekend. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be heading to Los Angeles. I think I'll probably do a little essay with you. And we've got the Stephen Pinker, Sam Harris thing, which would be pretty good. And I've got three conferences coming up. The one is called the Faithless Forum. It's in Dallas. I think it's like April, uh, I want to say 14th or something like that. If you go to faithlessforum.com, you'll find information. It's going to be a one-day organization, uh, one-day conference of content creators, people who are on YouTube, they have podcasts, they're interested in atheism, skepticism. We're going to be gathering in Dallas to do a one-day conference there. There's the NanoCon, which is March 17th in Nashville. I'll be giving two workshops on street epistemology. I'll be giving an 18-minute talk, like a TED-style talk there, and possibly a panel discussion on the various tactics that people use when they have conversation. That's going to be a busy day. Oh, and wow. then American Atheist has a three-day convention coming up. I believe it's March 30th through April 1st. It's in Oklahoma City. We will um, be giving a workshop that first day, I think a two-hour workshop on street epistemology. I'll be giving a 45-minute talk during that conference, and then we'll be tabling at both NanoCon and American Atheists. We have volunteers who will be showing video examples uh, of SE and answering questions that people might have so that we can promote the method to more non-believers. Yep, and I'll be at the table for both NanoCon and yeah. American and Dan's going to be at the Oklahoma City one, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So. You know, the, the Oklahoma City one, i got to say, it's a three-day event. House, the guy that plays House is going to be there. Uh, Hugh Laurie, the actor. Mm. There are so many speakers. I, I learned just the other day that a large contingent of the Atheist Experience group will be up there. A lot of the people who are on you know, in the front end and the back end of that, that whole program will be there. I think Seth Andrews is going to be doing a show from there. Um, if you can only make one event, I would say go to the American Atheist one because it's a three-day thing. But I think the NanoCon one is great too. They're jamming a lot in the one day. So try to make one of those. If you have any interest, whoops, somebody's here. If you have any interest in street epistemology or atheism in general, then please look into those events. Cool. All right. I guess that's all our announcements for today. And cool. That was an awesome episode. Thanks, you guys. And uh, I guess we'll just give our 
social media, any contact info. Again, my name is Reed, Cordial Curiosity. You can find me on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And Dan, how about you? Yeah, I can be found on Twitter uh, at Objectively Dan, and my YouTube is The Man, Dan. Just real quick, you can find me on Twitter at Magnabosco and a link to my top 10 chats right from my Twitter bio. And Jules, do you have any social media you'd like to give out or no? I mean, you can find me on YouTube. I'm Jules B, uh, but there's nothing about SE on there. So if you want to see me teach, you can go there. Okay, cool. All right, well, thanks again, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.